my beloved congregation of Kalamazoo. As of this morning, I may now say that. And I sense that very deeply, that something significant transpired for you and for me. But I immediately want to begin by not focusing on myself, but focusing on God's Word. And I would ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts by way of introduction. The book of Acts, chapter 10, chapter 10, and I want to briefly focus on verse 29 and 33, 29 and 33. This is the chapter that records for us the story of Peter receiving that remarkable vision, that sheet that comes from heaven, and then how God reveals to him that he must go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Then, of course, the servants of Cornelius come and knock on the door, and all of this comes together, and Peter, having been instructed by God, follows the obvious call to go and minister to Cornelius and his house. So what does he say when he enters the house? Verse 29, therefore, he says, came I unto you without gainsaying as soon as I was sent for. And I may say, congregation, that's true for me as well, that the Lord has made me willing to leave behind my dear congregation in Hull and to recognize his sovereign call to come and bring his word to you. But Peter then goes on to say, I ask therefore, and again, I want to ask you the same question, I ask therefore, for what intent you have sent for me? For what intent have you called me? What motivated you to extend the call to me to come over and to help you? Now, Cornelius was able to answer that question. Cornelius was able to explain what had transpired, how he had wrestled in prayer, how he had fasted and sought the Lord's countenance, and how in that process... God remarkably answered his prayer. And therefore he says, so remarkably in verse 33, now therefore, he says, therefore are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. And my dear congregation of Kalamazoo, it is my wish and my desire that this may be true for you tonight as well. That as you are seated here, to hear me preach God's word to you for the first time as your own pastor, that you would say to me, we are all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Because I'm deeply aware, congregation, that that is my sacred calling. I stand here as God's servant. I stand here as God's spokesman. I stand before you as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand here as a man who has this sacred calling not to proclaim to you my wisdom, my wisdom and my words, but I stand before you as one who is called to be obedient to the great king of the church, to be obedient to his word and to proclaim to you 
whatsoever He commands me to proclaim. A congregation that I can summarize that very simply. That means I am commanded to preach Christ to you. That's a very short statement, a very simple statement, but a statement of extraordinary significance. In Acts 5, the last verse of Acts 5, verse 42, we read this remarkable statement about the apostles. We read there that they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. And it is my longing and my desire that so it may be here in this pulpit that I will not be able to cease to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Not just about Jesus Christ. Because if I, if I only preach about Jesus Christ, and I need to do that, I need to preach to you who He is. In this glorious person, I need to proclaim to you what he has accomplished. I need to preach about him, but I need to do more than that. Not just preach about Christ, I need to preach Christ. What does that mean? That means that with all urgency, I must offer Christ to you. I must offer him, not just what he has done, I must offer him to you in his glorious person. And I must invite you to come to Him. The Lord Jesus in this well-known parable said, compel them to come in. That means I am called to preach that word with holy urgency. To urge you to come to this Christ. To look to Him. To believe in Him. To trust in Him. Not only once, but over and over again. And may God equip me by His Holy Spirit to do precisely that. My dear congregation, that is my desire. With all of my frailty, with all of my deficiencies, that nevertheless, God will use me to proclaim Christ to you. That's why I feel directed by that Christ, the King of the church, who has sovereignly called me to become your shepherd, to unpack for you in some measure what that means. There's no better way to do that, or to attempt to do that, than by His very own words. And so with God's help, I want to expound briefly for you the remarkable utterance of the Lord Jesus Christ, made in the upper room, when he said in John 14, verse 6, John 14, verse 6, when Jesus responds to the question of Thomas, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And then he answers with these extraordinary words, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Boys and girls, I want you to look at this text because I will often do this. I want you to understand when I preach to you, I want you to understand why I choose a certain theme and why I choose certain points. 
Because I want you also to understand the connection between the text and between my sermon. So look at this text, this amazing text. And so what we have here is Christ's declaration regarding Himself. That's what makes this text so remarkable. Christ here in a a very amazing way unveils to us who He really is. Three things. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So Christ is saying here that I am the way to the Father. I am the truth about the Father. And I am the life with the Father. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth about the Father. And I am the life with the Father. Or I could put it this way. I am the way. I am the only way in which you can be reconciled with my Father. I am the only way in which you can become acquainted with my Father. And it's only through me that you can have a living relationship with my Father. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Of course, these verses belong to the amazing discourse of Christ in the upper room on the eve of His crucifixion. And I would venture to say that those chapters, and actually it begins already in chapter 13, verse 31. That's where that discourse already begins. And this happens after Judas has left. So Christ is only left now with those that genuinely love Him. The traitor is gone. And I would venture to say that what we find in these chapters, the last part of chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, followed by that amazing intercessory prayer, that we have the most extraordinary portion of all of Scripture. There is nothing like it. Because in these passages, in these chapters, On the eve of his crucifixion, knowing what awaited him, Christ pours out his heart to his disciples. And in a most remarkable way, he unveils to them who he is. He unveils for what purpose he has come. A congregation that makes also our text so very remarkable. I'm certain that some of our young people know that What makes the Gospel of John so unique compared to the other three apostles is that this Gospel especially focuses on the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Godhead of Christ. That's why the Gospel of John begins in such a remarkable way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal and living Word of God. 
He unveils him there as the ultimate revelation of who God is. Because after all, that's what we use our words for. We were created in God's image. We're created with the ability to communicate verbally. That's only a reflection of who God is Himself. So in His Son, God reveals to us who He is. God reveals His thoughts to us. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal living Word of God. That's why in this gospel we find the famous seven I am statements. I have no time to quote them now, but you can do your own research. The the famous I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the light of the world. And this is one of those I am statements, those seven I am statements. In other words, Jesus went out of his way to let the people of Israel know that he was none other than Jehovah in the flesh, that he was none other than the I am of the Old Testament. He was none other than the one who led them through the wilderness. So again and again, he would say, I am, as he does here in our text. What makes this text so special is that it is ultimately a threefold declaration of I am. A threefold declaration about his identity. We could say that in this remarkable statement about himself, Christ reveals to his disciples and to us the bottom line of all the instruction that he had given them. That's why he grieved when when Philip said to him, Show us the Father, and it will suffice us. And he said, Philip, have I been so long with you? Have you not heard me? Have you not paid attention to my instruction? Have I been so long with you? And yet you're asking me to show you the Father. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the revelation of the Father. That brings us to our first point. When he says, I am the way. And so Christ first states this in a very positive way. Then in the second part of our text, and I will address it at the end, he then underscores what he is saying negatively when he says, No man cometh unto me, or cometh unto the Father, but by me. I am the way to the Father. As Pastor Najafor already pointed out this morning, Christ makes here a very exclusive claim. Christ is saying, there is no other way to the Father, but by me. It's remarkable how Christ also in these chapters continuously refers to that amazing relationship with his Father. The Gospel of John, 40 times, he talks about having been sent by his Father. He understood that his ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of his redeeming work 
is to bring sinners back to His Father. Because congregation, that's how God created us. And I hope to explain this many, many times. That the relationship between God and Adam was not just a relationship between creator and creature. It was a father-child relationship. God was Adam's father, and Adam was God's son, bearing the image of God, bearing the image of God's son. Oh, the relationship between God and Adam was a, a love relationship. A remarkable love relationship. And that father-child relationship was broken as a result of sin. As a result of sin. The God who created this man and this woman in His image had to expel them from His presence. Had to expel them from the garden. And yet before He did that, he first preached the gospel to them to let them know that even though they had established a friendship with Satan, that God would send a seed who would destroy that friendship, who would come in order to bring human beings, fallen sons and daughters of Adam, to bring them back to himself, to bring them back into that father-child relationship congregation. I hope to emphasize this many times. That's the goal of redemption. The goal of redemption is not merely to deliver us from the wrath to come. The goal of redemption is not as it is so often cheapened in today's evangelical America, as if the only reason we're saved is to stay out of hell and go to heaven. The goal of redemption is to bring us back to God. The goal of redemption is to restore that broken relationship, to bring us back into an everlasting love relationship with our Maker, with our Creator. That's why Christ came into the world. That's why the Son of God took upon Himself the human nature. That's why His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Because in the incarnation, something amazing happens, congregation. In the incarnation, in Him, God and man are reconnected. God and man are reunited in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the incarnation is the display of God's good pleasure. By the incarnation, by that amazing union of the divine and the human in the very person of Christ, God revealed His intent with sending His Son. Because the intent of sending His Son to become a sacrifice for sin is to bring us back to God, is to restore that broken relationship. That's why Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 58 verse 12, Thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. What a beautiful statement, the repairer of the breach. And so we could say that in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of man 
could again become the sons of the living God. Christ is saying, I am the only way in which that can be accomplished. But not only am I the only way, I am the real way. This is why I have come. But he knew very well that in order to accomplish that, in order to pave the way in which you and I could be reconciled with God, in which you and I can be restored into God's favor, the only way in which that could be accomplished is by giving himself as a sacrifice for sin. The great eternal dilemma was, how shall I pardon this? And that dilemma was resolved in God's eternal counsel where it was purposed that the Son of God would give Himself in the fullness of time to be the sacrifice for sin, that He would come to be wounded for our transgressions, to be bruised for our iniquities, so that the the chastisement of our peace would be upon Him. Oh, He knew in the Garden of Gethsemane That the only way he could be the way back to the Father is if he would surrender himself to the horrendous death of the cross. That's why he sweat great drops of blood. He felt the immense weight of God's wrath descending upon him. He knew what was before him. He knew that on the cross he would have to descend into hell itself that he would be utterly forsaken by his Father. Why? Why would he be forsaken by his Father? In order that he could be the way back to the Father. And so, reverently speaking, the Father shut the door on his own Son on Calvary's cross in order that in him he could open that door for us. And the reason I stand before you to preach to you today and in the future that Christ is the way to the Father, that Christ is the way in which we can be reconciled with Him, that privilege, that gospel was merited by this Christ. That's why He was committed to go the way of the cross. That's why He willingly surrendered Himself to be nailed to the accursed cross. That's why he descended into the very depths of hell, so that he could be the way back to God. My dear congregation, and I hope to preach about this in the future, that's why the moment he cried out, it is finished, the moment he commended his spirit into his father's hands, his father could not refrain himself any longer And he rent the veil. He rent that veil of separation, thereby to declare, the way is now open because of what my son has accomplished. The son of my good pleasure, the way is now open. I can now freely come to you, and you can come freely to me. A congregation with God's help, I want to preach that way to you. I want to preach to you that there is no other way, that Christ is the only way. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does in His saving ministry. His work is to glorify Christ. 
And so the reason he convicts of sin, the reason he strips us of our own righteousness, is to make us willing to agree to that way, that only way, God's way. So the Holy Spirit will bring us to an end in ourselves. But for one reason only, is to unveil that way in Christ, to unveil the beauty of this Savior, this willing and able Savior. And how precious that Christ then becomes. Then we, we get to know Him experientially. Then He becomes experientially beautiful and altogether lovely and the chiefest among 10,000. Because congregation, the Holy Spirit always works in this way, that we will understand why we need a crucified Christ. There are so many today who speak glibly about Christ, as if the only reason you need Him is to be a friend. No, we need a Savior. We need a Savior who had to die on the accursed cross, a Savior who was made a curse. And we will never appreciate that until we realize, until as, we, as my son-in-law pointed out this morning, unless we really see ourselves in the mirror of God's law, until we see ourselves the way God sees us, and when we see ourselves the way God sees us, then we will realize there is but one way, and that is this Christ, this precious Christ. And oh, how I long to be used of God point you to that way over and over again, to urge you to take refuge to this Christ, this willing and able Christ, this Christ who saves to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. Oh, in Him there is a wide open door through which the greatest sinner can go. The finest sinner fits through that open door. He is the way. Not only once, but I hope to instruct you, dear believer, that you may come to Him again and again and again. Wilhelm Brackel says it so beautifully in his chapter on saving faith. He says the true believer is someone who takes their refuge to Christ thousands upon thousands of time. That's the life of faith. But I must hasten on, regretfully, because congregation, what is the purpose for which Christ reconciles us with God? Why does He present Himself in the gospel as the way to the Father, the way back to the Father? Because His desire is that you would know the Father, not only to be reconciled with Him, but that you would know the Father. That's ultimately His desire. Listen to these remarkable words from John 1, verse 18, a verse that I will quote often. It says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That's it. So in other words, in the fullness of time, the Son of God came out of the bosom of the Father in order that through Him we would know His Father. That's his, that was His overriding desire. 
That's why he was so disappointed by Philip's question. Because that's what he had been doing for three years. For three years he had been teaching those disciples. For three years he had been showing them who the Father was as revealed in him. Because you see, he is the only one who truly knows the Father. He has eternally been in his Father's bosom. That's another way of saying He knows the heart of his father. He knows the heart of his father from the inside out. And he has come forth in order that through him we would know his father. Listen to the remarkable words of Matthew 11 verse 27. No man knoweth the son but the father. Neither knoweth any man the father save the son. So there's a very unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And I hope to unpack that in the future as well. A very unique love relationship. But then he adds this. So he says, Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. That's it. And that's why immediately after that verse he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it is Christ's desire, it is His overriding desire to bring us back to the Father Himself, to bring us back into a love relationship with His Father. He came to glorify His Father. In that remarkable prayer in John 17, He said, Lord, He said, Father, I have declared Thy name unto these men, which thou hast given me. My dear congregation, as the servant of this Christ, it is my desire that through him you might know the Father. And I will emphasize many times that that's not the privilege of a rare few, but that's belongs to the very basics of true Christianity. To know the Father in and through His only begotten Son. A congregation. Again, he realized that we would never truly understand who His Father was and who He is unless He would go to the accursed truth or the accursed cross. That's why he said to Pilate, who who was cross-examining him, he made this remarkable statement about himself. He says, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. The truth about his Father. That's why in the day of his resurrection, when he, when he appears to Mary Magdalene, he says, Mary Magdalene, go tell my brethren that I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And thereby he was saying, this is the purpose for which I suffered and died and have risen again in order that my Father could be your Father, and that my God could be your God. 
You see, that is Christ's chief delight, is to make His Father known to sinners. And I hope and pray that God will use me to so preach the gospel and to so preach Christ to you that you will behold the Father in Him. Because that's the point that He made to Philip. He said, Philip, Philip, you are asking me this. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the revelation of the Father. And so in 1 John 5 verse 20, John writes, the same John, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding. What is it? That we may know Him that is true. And so there's the Spirit's work as well. The Spirit who is the Spirit of adoption. What, a, what a, an amazing name, the Spirit of adoption. And so the Spirit's ministry is to shed light upon Christ, to shed light upon His beauty, on His glory, on His person, on His work, to shed light on Him so that through Him we might behold the glory of His Father. That's the work of the Spirit. That's why He's the Spirit of the Father and of the Son. His work as the Spirit of the, Son, as the, Spirit of the Father He will lead us to the Son, so that through the Son we might behold the glory of the Father. That brings us to our third point. I need to move on quickly here. But I hope that God will spare me for some time, that I'm privileged to unpack some of these astounding truths for you here from the pulpit, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Because Christ not only wants you to know that He is the way to the Father and the truth about the Father, but the very reason why He wants us to know the Father is in order that we would have a living relationship with His Father. That's His ultimate desire. That was Adam and Eve's privilege. They lived in daily fellowship with God. God's desire was to meet with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And they would meet in this special corner of the Garden of Eden. And there God would open up His heart to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve would rejoice in their Maker. This is exactly what God desires. And so, dear believer, God has redeemed you to bring you back to Himself. He has redeemed you in order to open His heart to you. He has redeemed you in order because His desire is to have a living relationship with you. That's why Christ says, I'm not only the way to the Father, I'm not only the truth about the Father, but I am the life with the Father. That's why God instituted the ceremonial worship after He had redeemed them. Boys and girls, you know what happened in Exodus God dramatically redeemed the people of Israel. And He did not redeem them until when? Until the Passover lamb had been slain. The Passover lamb which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Once the lamb had been slain, once the blood had been shed, on the basis of that shed blood, God redeemed the people of Israel. Because they were no better than the Egyptians. Think of their behavior in the wilderness. There was only one reason why God redeemed them. It's because God sovereignly purposed it, that He would redeem the seed of Abraham. That's very humbling. If by the grace of God you are a believer, it's not because you were in any way superior to others. There's only one explanation for why you are a redeemed sinner today. That's because of God's sovereign purpose and God's sovereign good pleasure. The point I want to make is this. Once God redeems them, gives them His law, then He gives them this amazing system of sacrifices. And what was God's purpose with this? He gave them the priesthood, because through the priesthood, God would be able to have a living relationship with His redeemed people. That's why there was a morning and evening sacrifice by which God communicated every single day His grace, by which He declared to a sinful people that He had provided a bloody sacrifice by which He could be their God and they could be His people. And that's why, my dear congregation, it is also the work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of adoption to so instruct us, to so teach us, to so unveil to us the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we so understand the gospel that we come to the full assurance of being reconciled with God in Christ. Dear believer, your heavenly Father does not want you to live in doubt. I realize that because of our weakness, we struggle with doubt. But God's desire is to bring you to the full assurance of His love, the full assurance of your reconciliation in Christ. That's the purpose of the ministry of word and sacrament. And by means of the ministry of word and sacrament, God keeps on teaching us, instructing us, keeps on unveiling to us the glory and the beauty of His Son, the preciousness of what He has accomplished, so that we would… Oh, Paul says, let me, let me use the words of Paul rather than mine. He says in Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Congregation, it's one of the most basic privileges of God's children to be able to call God their heavenly Father. This is why Christ came. This is what His goal and objective was. His whole goal of His ministry is to bring through Him to bring us back to the Father. 
And so the very reason God wants you to be assured of His love, the reason He wants you to be assured of being reconciled with Him through His Son, is so that you can enjoy an intimate father relationship with Him in Christ. Again, listen to God's Word, Romans 8.32. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Not just a little bit, not just a crumb here and there. No, Paul says, this God who did not spare His own Son, who gave everything to redeem sinners, would He not freely give you all things. With God's help, I hope to proclaim to you over and over again is that that simple exercise of faith, that simple act of coming to Christ as a poor and needy sinner, that simple touching of the hem of His garment, that that secures for the sinner all the blessings that Christ has secured by His sacrifice. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now we have received the Spirit which is of God. Listen carefully. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So the Holy Spirit wants you to know, dear believer, He wants you to know what you have been freely given of God in Christ. And it's my desire, it's my fervent desire that God will use me in your midst to proclaim you to you what all those things are, all those things that are to be found in Christ, all of His riches, all of His benefits, all that He has accomplished by His finished work. And that's why Christ in chapter 15 At some point, we will do a series on chapter 15 about abiding in Christ. That's why Christ says to His disciples on the eve of His crucifixion, you have come to Me, but now I want you to stay with Me. Don't just come to Me, but stay with Me. Abide in Me. Abide in My presence. Abide in My fellowship. Abide in My Word. Abide in Me. Because if you abide in me, and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit to the glory of the Father, you see. In other words, the more you abide in me, the more I will abide in you, the more you will experience the unspeakable joy of having my Father as your Father. And so I hope and pray that also as that God will use my ministry with all my deficiencies to make you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That God will use my ministry to establish you, to find that abiding assurance of His favor that abiding assurance that can withstand all of the trials of life, that abiding assurance that enabled Paul and Silas 
to worship God in the middle of the night in a prison cell. Because even though they did not understand his ways, yet there was no doubt about their father's love for them. And so they worshipped him even then. And so the more we abide in Christ, the more we will know the Father. In chapter 20, or in verse 21 of this same chapter, he says, He that loveth me, listen carefully, he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. He that loveth me. So let me ask you, congregation, do you love this Christ that I preach to you? Do you love him? Because this is the most foundational mark of grace. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16 that if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, he is accursed. That's why when, Peter, when, when Christ restored Peter at the Sea of Galilee, he did not give him a, a theological cross-examination. He asked him one simple question. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And he asked him that three times, Peter, do you love me? And finally, Peter, oh, he knew why the master asked him three times. There he stood condemned, knowing he had denied him three times. And yet, he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Lord, look into my innermost heart. Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that in spite of what I have done, in spite of my failure, in spite of my denial, thou knowest that I love thee. Can you say that too? Can you bear your heart tonight? Can you lay your heart open and say, Lord, thou knowest Thou knowest that I love thy Son. Thou knowest that I love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That's why Paul ended his letter to the Ephesians precisely in that way. In his final greeting to the people of God in Ephesus, he referred to them as those that love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And see, in verse 21, Christ says, He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Amazing words. And why does the Father love those that love his Son? Because the Father loves his Son. And we cannot honor the Father more than by loving His Son. We cannot honor the Father more than by believing in His only begotten Son. That's why the voice of, rang from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. This is the Son of my love in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And so, my dear congregation, Oh, it is my fervent desire to get to know you. And I hope that I will meet many among you who sincerely love the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom this Christ has become altogether lovely and the chiefest among 10,000, who understand in some measure what it means 
And the poet said, give me this Jesus or else I die. Christ once asked the disciples, what do you think of me? That's the question I want to ask you too as your pastor. My dear congregation, boys and girls, what do you think of this Christ? What does this Christ mean to you? Because the answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. And that's why Christ underscores this remarkable statement about himself by saying, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. There is no other way to be reconciled with God. That's why Peter boldly said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And my prayer is that God will equip me to proclaim that truth in your midst over and over again. That there is only one name given under heaven whereby we and our children must be saved. And that's why the Holy Spirit works precisely in this way. That's why He cuts off everything outside of Christ. That's why He takes away everything in our lives that is not Christ. And if, as believers, if we still have some crutches on which we lean, the crutch of our emotions, the crutch of our stirrings, the crutch of our tears, if there is something other than Christ that we rest in, He'll take it away. Because He is the Spirit of Christ. He is jealous of the glory of Christ. And He will not allow us to find rest for our souls except in Christ. For there is only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. God forbid that I would lay any other foundation in your midst except Jesus Christ. And you will hear often from me that the only reliable evidence of the new birth is faith in Christ. The new birth manifests itself in faith in Christ. All experience, no matter how many tears we shed, all experience that does not lead to Christ is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ said it in John 6, 45, Every man that has heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. In other words, how do we know whether we are taught by God? How do we know whether we are taught by the Father? We know it by our coming to Him. Christ says, when my Father teaches you, you cannot but come to me. You will be drawn to me. You will be irresistibly attracted to me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes Christ irresistibly attractive so that we cannot but come to Him, not once, but to come to Him over and over and over again. And my dear congregation, it's my desire 
to set before you a willing Christ. A willing Christ who is so willing and ready to receive you with open arms. Not once, but over and over and over and over again. It is my desire to remove all obstacles that would keep you from coming to this Christ. Oh, I desire to preach to you that this Christ is so willing and ready to receive the vilest sinner that no matter how long you have sinned, no matter how deeply you have sunk, no matter how grievously you have transgressed God's commandments, if you come to this Savior, He will in no wise cast you out, but He will receive you with open arms. He is able, as Paul writes in Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. In other words, this is a Savior who specializes in hopeless cases. Hopeless cases. So many came to Him during His sojourn. And you know from your Bible history, no one ever came to Him in vain. No one was ever turned away by Him. Oh, my dear congregation, I am commanded to preach Christ to you as the way to the Father, as the truth about the Father, and the life with the Father. And with the Apostle Paul, I can say, I have longed to see you. Why? That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established in Christ. Because he, 1 John 5 verse 12, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Oh, my beloved people, what do you think of this Christ? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, in the name of thy well-beloved Son, our Mediator, our Emmanuel, we come to thee at the end of this service. And Lord, we recognize how utterly inadequate our language is to express the beauty of this Christ. And yet we have been privileged to listen to his own words, whereby he so powerfully describes for us who he is, the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, and the life with the Father. And Lord, I pray that even our word tonight would bear fruit, that Thou wouldst use me in the midst of this people to lift up this Christ, to preach Him and His unsearchable riches, to preach Him who is Thy unspeakable gift to the children of men so that thy people will be established and grow in the grace and knowledge of this Christ, but also that sinners will be drawn by the cords of thy love out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. O oh Lord, let thy kingdom come and grant us a rich measure of thy Spirit as we labor among these dear people to whom thou hast called us. Go with us now as we depart from here. 
bring us again here together on the following Lord's Day. Forgive our sins of this day and of this hour. We ask it in Jesus' name alone. Amen.